invite you, whether you're online or in the house, just to stay in that space. Just stay there right now. And if you have family close by, sitting next to you, a friend, just maybe kind of place your hand upon them if, if you feel safe and it's the okay thing to do. And just speak the name of Jesus. You know there's somebody in your family tree right now that's just full of anxiety and full of fear and they're stuck in addictions and you don't know what to pray for them. Just speak their name and then just speak the name of Jesus. I want you to think about our world. Think about our nation. Think about Ukraine. And you don't know what to pray. You don't know what to say. Just, just speak the name of Jesus. And so, God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection and the power of your Holy Spirit. Unleash the name of Jesus upon our lives. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're here. Thank you for coming, especially those that are brand new, whether you're watching online for the very first time. I know there's probably somebody who just kind of stumbled upon us on YouTube or you stumbled upon our website this morning and you kind of joined us. Man, thank you so much. You're welcome here uh, online through this miracle of technology. We're just an honor you invite us into your home, into your car, into your hospital, into your vacation to be with you and your family. And if you're here in the house for whatever reason that God led you here, uh, whatever awakened you from the bed this morning, that you would come and be at this place, whether it's first time or long time. We just love being together in worship. And, and you being here just makes it richer and sweeter. And we would seriously like to visit with you and connect with you. And we'll be out in the crossing afterwards as you're kind of milling around. Please stop any of the staff or each other and just connect and be with one another. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to find the book of Esther. And I know it's a little hard thing to find, so you can open the table of contents. That'll help you get there. Or you can go to find Nehemiah or Proverbs, I mean, or Job, and it's stuck in between that. Uh, but we we're talking a, a second week of a message series, uh, three-week series. We're calling It Is Your Time. And we're wrestling with this concept of a calling or a God mission. And we learned last weekend that so many of us, our lives just kind of shrink up. And we wind up pursuing something called a shadow mission. And that we spend most of our time in our energy, just focused on our success, focused on comfort, focused on security, focused on our wealth. And God has something so much more for you. If you are alive, that means you're in this room, you're here online, you can hear my voice. I want you to hear that you're alive because God has a calling upon your life. And so many people go through this earth and they never know their calling. Last weekend, we learned about a man, his name was Xerxes, who had no concept of what it was to have a God mission. And his whole time was focused upon himself. And that's where many of us live our lives, focused upon ourselves. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of give you some tools to help you figure out your God mission. 
that when you leave here, you should have a better idea or you tune out online of how to discover the calling that God has upon your life. And we're going to pick up the story where we started, where we ended last week here in chapter 1 of, uh, of Esther. And we learn in chapter 1 of Esther, there's this king and his name is, is Xerxes. He is a, has a big kingdom. It extends, we learn, from India to Africa. He has 127 provinces. He's a very influential, he's the big cheese in the world at that time. And he has a very selfish way of living his life. His whole life is only about wealth and pleasure that's driven by his ego. And in chapter 1, we see he has all these banquets. And at one of these banquets, where there's lots of drinking going on, this king, the leader of a nation, the leader of all these people, he decides that he wants to show off his ultimate possession, that is his hot wife. And so he sends an edict in order for his hot wife to come along there and walk in front of all these drunken, crazed men, and his hot wife refuses. She says, no, not going to do it. And so the king the leader of the known world at that time, Xerxes, not knowing how to manage his wife, he turns to the Supreme Court, that is the experts in the law, and says, guys, I hands up. I don't know what to do about my family. I don't know what to do about my wife. What do you think? And those guys feed into his shadow mission. Now, I want to clarify what the difference between a shadow mission and a God mission because some of you are here for the first time you don't know. It's already in your notes. I want to put it on the screen to remind you. A shadow mission is anything in my life, or which when I center it, that is unworthy, dark, or selfish. And I'm tempted to center most of my time, the best of my energy, the best of my finances, all my thoughts around that. But a God mission is something in my life that God wants to use to change the world. Xerxes has no concept of a God mission. It's totally about his own selfish, shadowy little self. And the Supreme Court, his close advisors, they just feed into it. And this is what they tell him. You know what you need to do, King? You need to get a new queen. That's what you need, dude. You need a new queen. Because you got to reinforce all across the nation that the man is the head of the house and he's in charge. And if you don't do that, bad stuff is going to happen. That's what they advise him. He's all wise advisors. And so the king does that. And we're told uh, right down here at the very end of chapter 1, verse 22, the king sends dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that Every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. Now, let me tell you, how do you think that went over in all the homes when the women heard that? Yeah, not so much. How do you think it happened, went down in King Xerxes' own home, his own palace? Not so good. In fact, we read right there in chapter 2, verse 1, later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, mad that, that his wife did not do what he asked her to do, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. In other words, he woke up one day and went, whoa, 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 I lost my cool. I don't have a queen. I need a queen. 
Somebody needs to write this down. I don't know who needs to, but somebody does. The king lived his life by impulse, not by a greater mission, not by higher ideals. He lived his life by impulse, and now he's got nothing but regrets that I don't have a queen. What did I do? What was I thinking? Here's what you need to write down. If I live my life on impulse, the only thing I will collect is regrets. The reason some of you find yourself in this endless, bottomless cycle, you react, you make choices and decisions based on impulse instead of something higher, a calling that God has upon your life. That's exactly what the king does. And so he finds himself with this regret that he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have a queen. And so he goes, you know what, I don't know what to do. I'm king, I'm the most powerful guy, but I don't know what to do, so i got to get some advice. Not from his Supreme Court. This time he gets advice from his personal attendants, who happens to be his bodyguards, his security, these young men who's all young and viral and full of testosterone. Now let me ask you. What do you think ideas they had on the kind of woman he should choose for his queen? What do you think? What do you think they would suggest, huh? Well, let's let, the let the text tell us. You keep guessing. Here's what the text says. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint a commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. And let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Unbelievable. They're going to have this contest. He has 127 provinces. Each province to send one beautiful young, young virgin to the palace to be in the king's harem, and they're going to compete to see who gets to be queen. Now, aren't you glad that we live in a day where nothing like that exists in our world? Are you glad that we live in a world where no, nowhere would we think about someone having a contest of bringing all these young, 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 young women, beautiful, attractive women to come in there to all apply for the affection of one man, to compete for the affection, to compete for his, to be the smartest, to be the prettiest, to be the wisest, that eventually, one by one, they would just fall by the wayside. They would like each other. They would hate each other until he says, I choose you. Are you glad nothing like that exists in our world. Whoa. Aren't you glad we live in a culture where a man's position in the world is not based on his ability to have a trophy wife? Aren't you glad we live in a world, oh no, no, we're in a nation where no person vying for political office to lead would ever say for justification, for their reason for being elected is that they have a hot wife. <laughs> Aren't you glad? And yet we do. They had no idea that God's working in the middle of this process and the process is a mess. But what they don't realize is that God really is working. God's right in the middle of it. 
And one of the lessons, that's one of the key lessons I want you to grasp. Now, in chapter 3, we discover, chapter 2, we discover that one of the contestants to be queen is a little girl named Esther. She is an orphan. Her parents both had died. She is raised by her, her cousin Mordecai. She has a lovely figure. She is beautiful. Mordecai and Esther are both Jewish. And this is the first time we get a clue as to why this strange little story is in the Bible. Because they are Jewish. And the Jewish people, Esther and Mordecai, are living in exile. They lost their land. They've lost their homes. They've lost the promise of God. They feel like God's mission for them to be the light unto the world as a people of God called Israel. Mordecai tells Esther as she's competing, do not let the king know your identity of your Jewishness. We do not know why. The text doesn't show us, but she doesn't. And Esther actually becomes one of the finalists. She makes it through the prelims to be one of the finalists to be selected as queen. And she's going to get to have her first date with King Xerxes. Now, let me ask you, I want you to do a little survey here. I want to get you context. I want you to go back in time to remember a time in your life when you were getting ready for a big, big day, okay? Now, I know some of you can think right now because you're thinking you're getting ready for a, your ne- for a big, big day. But some of you got to go way, way back when you're getting ready for a big, big day. And I want you to think about all that's involved, the pressure you feel in getting ready for a big day. Whether you got to bathe, you got to shower, you got to do the hair, you got to shave, you got to choose the makeup, right? You got to choose the right wardrobe. Uh, you got to get the accessories. What are you going to wear? What's it going to look like? Where are you going? You got to make the plans. All this sort of stuff. Perfume, cologne, yes, no, all this sort of stuff. And you'll get all this pressure because it's a big, big day, so, so big. So now you got it. You got back in time. You found it. Okay, now I want to ask you a little survey here. How many of you have spent, ever spent more than 15 minutes getting ready for a big day? Raise your hands. Chat online, okay? How many of you ever spent more than an hour getting ready for a big day? I want to see the hands. Of course you have, more than an hour. How, how many of you spent more time getting ready for the date than you spent on the date? How many of you had more fun getting ready for the date than you had on the date? Getting ready for a big day date can be lots of pressure when you think it's a big deal. I mean, it's so much. Hear the text. Chapter 2, verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, six with perfume and cosmetics. That is a lot of pressure. And I would suggest, after 12 months of doing all that, if he doesn't like you, it's just not going to happen. Just give up. Okay? But as it turns out, little Esther here, uh, she gets selected. She actually wins. She wins the whole thing. Look down there in verse 17. It says, man, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet, of course he did. All he did was like the party and have banquets and drink. Of course he did. And he named it after her. But notice I want you to say, it doesn't say, and they lived happily ever after. 
because they didn't. Everybody has this dream and hope of their life, living happily ever after. It doesn't happen. When you all turn the page, you get to the next chapter, chapter in chapter 3, we learn about this man named Haman. There's actually four primary characters in this story. You have Xerxes, you have Esther, and you have Mordecai who are related, and then you have Haman. And Haman is really angry. He is the first in command under Xerxes. He's his chief attendant. And he's upset with Mordecai because Mordecai refuses to bow and defer to him and feed the ego of Haman. Haman also has a shadow mission. And he's not a silly little jerk like King Xerxes is. He's not silly and just kind of party. He is driven by his ego to cause harm to other people who do not honor him the way he thinks he needs to be honored. And so he wants to do away not just with Mordecai, but he wants to get rid of all of Israel. And so he starts slandering the, 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 the whole Jewish people. He goes to the king to bribe the king that the king will let him destroy every man, woman, and child who is a Jew. And what's so fascinating about this, it kind of in typical fashion, when the king finds out, the king does not ask, who do you want to slaughter? Who do you want to kill? He just says, whatever. He gives him his ring, and they write it out that every man, woman, and child in Israel of the Jewish people are being annihilated, and he puts his ring on it, and it's done. And the edict spreads everywhere. And I want you to notice the end of chapter 3. Right after that happens, what does the king, what do the king and Haman do? It says the king and Haman, and they sat down to drink. Another banquet. Celebrating Haman that I'm going to destroy all these people. While they're all just up in arms. In fact, we're told right there in chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 1, when Mordecai heard about this, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, he put on ashes, and he begins to weep and wail bitterly, and he's doing it right outside the scripture says the king's gate. He's just walking back and forth. A little context. This would be like somebody in Washington, D.C., right in front of the White House, who's really upset that something bad's going on in their opinion, and they're picketing back and forth, back, little sign, Jewish Lives Matter, or something like that, right? And the king says, I'm not having any of it for you to do that. If you get seen doing that, not only could you be thrown in prison, you could be executed back here in the time of Xerxes. And so Esther, she's now queen. And she hears that Mordecai's out there doing that. She's going, Mordecai, you got to calm down. And she sends word to Mordecai, stop it. Just don't do it. And Mordecai sends a word back because he realizes his little cousin here is up there in his ivory palace, her little bubble, and she doesn't know what's going on in the real world. And he needs to tell her, and he realizes that the only person who could save their people is this little bachelorette, this little trophy wife, this little beauty queen. She's the one that can save everybody. And so he sends her the message, what's going on? And he says, you need to go to the king. You got to go to your husband. You got to beg. You got to plead for mercy that he'll change his mind. And she says, no way, not going to do it. Go read the text. Because she understands something. That if the king does not summon you and you go see the king, the king can execute you, capital punishment, on the spot, you're done. She says, no, 
I can't do it. It will mean my life. But not only that, he adds, gives us something that Mordecai didn't know. At the very end of verse 11, chapter 4. It's been 30 days has passed since I was even called to go to the king. Now think about that. This is husband and wife. This is king and queen. They've not seen each other for 30 days. They've not been together in 30 days. The king has a harem. All 127 girls who were in the beauty contest, they may not be queen, but they're in his harem for the king to have his way with them as he wants, and he does. He's not a devoted husband. He really has very little interest anymore in Esther. He's shown that. And so the chances of her changing his mind is really, really minimal to zero. And if she goes, it could for sure mean her head. Now, if you're Esther's family and you love her, you would probably back off and go, okay, forget I even said anything. It's too risky. Not Mordecai. He presses the pedal a little bit harder. And he says the most profound words in the Bible that a human being ever said eyeball to eyeball to another human being. And here's what he said. Esther, do not think because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, the fate of the whole nation of the people of God rests in your hands. Esther, you have not come to your current position at this point in your life. For the sake of you accumulating the most extravagant wardrobe that a woman has ever owned. You have not come to this point in your life so you can have precious gems and have servants to wait on you hand and foot. You have not come to this point in your life to have the reputation as being the most attractive young woman in the world, at least in our nation. You have not come to this position in your life for any reason that the king has in mind. Esther, you have come to this time in your life to give everything that you have to risk it all, to work for justice, to spare your people and your family from suffering. You have come to this point in life to give your life to God's plan to save and redeem the world. It may mean sacrificing your very life. Esther, do not get sucked in to the temptations of the world to your shadow mission of fulfilling a stereotypical position in our world of a woman who has it all and is vile and respected and valued by everyone who sees her. Don't you get sucked into that shadow mission. You see, Esther, you think you, you have a great, great career. And you think you have an awesome career. But Esther, you have something else. You have a calling. And I will say to anyone who can hear my voice right now in the house or online... If you are alive right now and you can hear my voice and you can feel breath coming out of your mouth and you feel your chest moving, 
You were not created by God just for a career. God has a call upon your life. In your notes, the difference between a career and a calling. A career is about advancing myself. A calling is about serving God. Pharaoh had a career. Moses had a calling. The emperor Nero, who executed Paul, had a career. Paul had a calling. Pilate had a career. Jesus had a calling. As you think about your own calling and your own God mission, here's four questions for you to reflect upon this week. First one, who plays the role of Mordecai in my life? Who have you invited into your life to challenge you, to keep you on track, who recognizes your giftedness and your talents and how God has wired you? Who is the spiritual person you have invited into your circle, into the daily walkings of your life, who knows you, who knows and I can I recognize and identify what you're good at and what God is, might be asking you to do? Who have you invited to keep you on the right path so you don't become for your shadow mission and get sucked into that, but living for a higher call? Who, who's in your life? If you have a Mordecai this week, I want you to write that person's down literally. Don't put it in your phone. Don't go to a tablet. I want you to literally get a pen and write that person's name down. There's something about inking it. Say, this is my Mordecai. Maybe you have more than one. Who is the Mordecai? And then I want you to text this person. I want you to call this person. I want you to thank them. Somehow thank them. Thank you for being this person, speaking truth into my life when I need to have truth spoken into my life. Thank you, and I want to give you the freedom to keep on doing it. Please, I need you in my life. Now, when you sit down to write down that name, if you don't have a name to write down, you go, whoa, I don't have a Mordecai. Stop right then and pray to God, God, will you give me a Mordecai? And I promise that is a prayer that God will answer. Because God knows you need a Mordecai in your life. And then start being aware of the people in your circle, where your relational world. Notice people that have wisdom. Notice people you admire and respect that are kind of in your circle. Invite them into your circle. Maybe invite them to have coffee. And if you choose to do that, don't have coffee and 30 seconds into the conversation go, will you be my Mordecai? They'll go, What? What are you smoking? You know, no, I'm not going to be your Mordecai. No, they don't have a clue what a Mordecai is probably. But I'll tell you what you do. Get to know them. Let them get to know you and see if you might eventually over time let them into your life to serve in that role. Question number two, what is the position to which God has called me? When the Bible talks about position, it's talking about sphere of influence. Everyone here has some measure a sphere of influence. For Esther, she was queen. For most of us, it's going to be a lot more humble than being queen. For most of us, it's going to be your job. It's going to be where you spend most of your time during the day. It's going to be a servant role somewhere you're already involved in the community. It's going to be your family. It could be your family is your greatest sphere of influence. Maybe it's your friendships, a network of people. Maybe it's your small group. Maybe it's your neighborhood, but become aware of the sphere of influence that God has given you in this position. 
Thirdly, what are the resources I bring to this position? You have resources. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have spiritual gifts. If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, you need to discover them. And you can do that by taking our place workshop. You can do it online in the privacy of your own home. You just go right here. Go click onto this right here. They have the little, you can take a picture of that. You can go to pathway.church, pathway.church, hashtag place, backslash place. You can discover your spirit. If you don't know how to do it, we'll help you uh, when you have that problem. You have wounds. It could be your woundedness in your history is one of the greatest resources you bring to your life that God will use for your calling upon your life. Some of you have a little time right now. For whatever reason, your life is opened up and you have some time. Some of you have a network of, in, of people that you have connections with that you have influence over. Some of you have some sort of physical trait. You have an education. You have a certification. You have a skill set you have developed somehow. You have a mind that thinks really well and problem solves really well. Whatever it is, you list the resources you bring to that position. Fourthly, what are the current needs and issues that touches my heart? You and I live in a point in history and time where the needs and issues in the world are off the chain. You did not ask to be born when you are, have been living in this season of life, but it is when you are alive, and you're alive for a reason, to help meet needs, to help meet issues that are in this world that God loves, that God created. That's why you exist. It's not for your own satisfaction and just for you to get to heaven and wait and float on some sort of angel's wings for the rest of your life. It is so much more. And Pathway Church, I wish I could have the opportunity to look at every single person in the eye and for you to understand the seriousness of this challenge this morning. That you were born in a time period and gifted in a certain way because God wants to use you for a greater purpose and a greater calling. And I believe that the needs... The needs of this world are huge, and people need Jesus like they've never needed Jesus before. Not religion. They need Jesus. The world needs the presence of the church as God designed, not some political little means to accomplish some platform, but the church that God God has designed to minister to the addictions and the brokenness and the lostness and all the hurts of human beings and families on this earth. And never before in history in our time that God has positioned the church for such a time as this. And God needs you to be a part of it. Now here's what I know that Esther's probably thinking. Some of you are thinking this right now about your own life. Esther says, you know what, I, I'm sorry all this is going on, Mordecai, but it's really just not my fault. It's not my fault. Years ago, Dallas and I uh, ended the summer by taking our kids to Six Flags, all three of our boys, and it was a fun experience, but it was a crazy experience because everybody else decided to do the same thing. Uh, you could barely move if Six Flags was so packed. And we have three sons, and our, our, our middle son, Jacob, uh, he was one of those kids that we needed, he was three, we needed a leash on him, you know what I'm talking about? We, you know how you can put a chip in a dog? We needed to be able to put a chip in that kid, because when you look up, he's just all over the place all the time, he's just always moving. And sure enough, we looked up one time, we couldn't see Jacob anywhere. 
And I know what moms and dads do. Automatically, our humanness kicks in when that happens at very first. And I'm thinking, Dallas, this is your fault. And she said, no, it's your fault. <laughs> no, it's your fault. No. And all of a sudden, we, thought, we started looking for the kid. No, we started looking for the kid. Where is he? Jacob. And we started shouting his name and yelling, pushing people. I mean, ha- have you ever felt like you lost a child somewhere and you feel like you're going to throw up? Your whole body is regurgitating. You feel this sickness, like you, your stomach is ever that. That's, you know how we were feeling. We're just looking. And finally, we found him. He didn't even know he was lost. He was just fine. <laughs> Can I tell you, a lot of times, some of us, we're lost and we don't even know it. But there's somebody who's looking for you. They love you so much. They care for you. You're welcome here. And you don't even know it. And so we found him. And I will tell you, when we found him, it did not matter whose fault it was. It was really Dallas's fault, I'm just saying. <laughs> but what mattered is that we had him in our Esther, I know it's not your fault the king is a jerk. I know it's not your fault that Haman is a monster. I know it's not your fault that the people of Israel are in exile. It's not your fault, but it's your time. In Pathway Church, I believe that God has brought us in the position that God has brought us today. Not just to be one of the largest churches, the largest church in our denomination, and one of the largest churches, most prosperous, successful church. We're so fortunate in Johnson County and Tarrant County for our own blessing, for our own joy, to make us feel good about ourselves, to make us feel happy about ourselves, but for such a time of this. It's not your fault, but it's your time. It's not your fault that the world is overrun by poverty. It's not your fault that billions of people go to bed every night hungry because they make less than a dollar a day. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that thousands of kids die daily from preventable causes while mothers weep and cry and curse with their little kid in their arms. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that we live in a nation where inflation is so out of control that some people just cannot even afford a car to get back and forth from their job. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that because of COVID and because of monkeypox and what all the disease, that we have a shortage of blood on hands. It's not your fault. But maybe, maybe, maybe you have some resources. Maybe you have a little money. Maybe you have a little time that you could show up in a couple of Saturdays to give blood on the blood drive. Maybe, maybe, maybe you have a car that instead of when you go trade it in, instead of trading it in, you go, you know what? I think I'll give that car to the church for Cars for Christ, and we'll put that in the hands of somebody. They got a job, and they can't kiss. But, you know, just maybe, just hurts. It's not your fault. But I wonder if it might be your time. It's, listen, listen I, I know the emails are coming. I know they're coming. I know they're coming. That's okay. Send them. I know it's not your fault that racism came to America. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that for hundreds of years people lived in chains and worked as slaves because of the color of their skin. It's not their fault. It's not their fault, the family you were born. Because in fact, there's no fault. It's just your gift, the color of your skin. It's your gift, the family you were raised. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. 
It's not, it, it is nobody in this room's fault. It's, it's not your fault that a little baby boy born to a single African-American mom has a greater chance of being in prison than being in college. It's not your fault. But maybe it's your time. Because you have an education, and you could go into some underprivileged school, and you could tutor a kid who doesn't have a dad to do it at home. You could do that. You could do that. Maybe you have a business, that you have a position of an internship that you could give to a young person to speak into their life and to model so they can grow up and have a healthy environment and influence upon their life. I know it's not your fault. I get it. I get it. But it could be your time. I know it's not your fault that there are children who have no idea that God loves them. That they're born into a home where the name of God is not even spoken. They don't even know who Jesus is. To you, it's just kind of commonplace. And I know it's not your fault that so many kids grow up in homes where they don't believe that they are important and they are valued and they are loved by God and another human being. And I know it's not your fault that so many kids are raised in a home where mom is here and dad is here. It's not your fault. But maybe you know God and maybe you know that Jesus loves the little children. And maybe you could give one hour a week, just one, one hour a week, back there in the neighborhood, back there in the crossing, just to hold a kid, just to sit down with a child. that They might know that somebody believes they're important, they're valued, and they are loved, and that God does too. Maybe it's not your fault, but it's your time. And it's not your fault that we have teenagers growing up in a culture that's woke, and they don't. Figure out their identity or who am I, what am I. It's not your fault. But maybe you could show up on a Wednesday night and serving crew on Wednesday night. And because some kid has a relationship with you, they would discover their identity is who they are in Jesus, who God says they are. And they would get on a total different track because of you. Turn to the person next to you and say it's your time. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault that so many people are walking away from the church and they don't have any interest in Jesus. It's not your fault that we live in the Bible belt and churches are shrinking. It's not your fault. But we live in a day and a time where people need to be invited and connected to Jesus more than ever, ever before. It's, it's not your fault. But could it be the time of Pathway Church for such a time as this? And church can also put it this way. The story of Esther is the story of Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he had no sin. Zero. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault the world was dark. It's not his fault that the world is evil. It's not his fault the brokenness, the seat, the lying, the political corruption. People obsessed with wealth and compulsed with climbing the ladder. It's not his fault. But it was his time. And he died upon that cross. For you. And you weren't his fault. It was his gift. It was his love. It was his mission. What's yours? And so Esther, Esther says, I can't do this by myself. 
okay, I'll do it, but you know what? I, I got to pray, and I just got to give you the last thing, the statement you got to do in your notes, because this is what she says. You got to go read the text on your own. I'm watching the time. So here's what she says I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and fast and ask God for clarity and courage about my life mission. So that's what you want, want you to write down, because Esther did it. You have a time of prayer and fasting this week to ask God for clarity. God, what is my life mission? And then she says, after I do this, when this is done, I will go to the king. I will do it, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. Now, what happens next is nothing short of just a heart-pounding suspense. Because you read right there in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, On the third day, and if you know the Bible, you know that's a very significant thing. On the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes. She puts on her crown. She prepares herself for the very last time she thinks to put this on. She steps out of her chamber. She goes in the hallway past the palace guards, and everybody's looking. They're going, oh, oh. And she starts walking toward the king's chambers. And they go, oh, she's not been summoned. Bad things are about to happen. People are buzzing and talking. People, she's walking, her heart's beating like this. Her hands are all sweaty and everything like that. She comes and stands right outside the door of the king's chambers. The king hears the commotion. The doors open. The king looks, he sees, the king stands up, and Esther is watching his scepter. Because one gesture of his scepter will mean life or death for her and for her nation. And now, the fate of a nation, the destiny of the people of God, and the plan for the redemption of the world through the people of Israel rest in this moment. They rest on the shoulders of a little beauty queen, a little bachelorette, a little trophy white named Esther. See you next week.